0: thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast for more information about Redemption Church please visit redemptionokc.com you can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes thanks again for listening we are going to be in First Timothy chapter 5 today. Let me pray for us and we will dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for promises that we have in it that you will not leave us nor forsake us, but that none whom you've given the Son will escape his grasp, that we can rest in your, your strength and in your goodness. Father, that is the very nature of grace that we have in Jesus, is that it's not our strength or our goodness, which binds us to you, but it's your strength and your goodness that through faith binds you to us. Father, in all the things of this world, but also in the life to come, Father, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there, your device, wherever it is you want to look that up, we're going to be walking through The end of chapter five, the beginning of uh, chapter six as we continue our study called The Good Fight. Today, we're gonna be talking about your job. Last week we talked about widows and I know for some it maybe didn't feel as immediately present or uh, applicable to your life, Um, but I think it had something for all of us. But today we're gonna talk about work and surely work touches all of us and and none of us can escape the need to work. Um, And so hopefully every one of us will find something here. Have you ever wondered if your Monday through Friday, nine to five though, had any significance or meaning? Yeah. Do you ever wrestle to find motivation to go do your Monday through Friday nine to five sort of a gig? Uh, well, we're going to look at some at some verses here today that I think shows us why it's important, but also tells us how we can find honor and motivation in our work. Uh, my work inside the church, and, and, and a few of us may fit that description, but then also uh, Paul's going to connect that directly to uh, the work of others in our world. And so we're going to get to that as well. What we're going to see is that whether you work inside a church or outside of work, your work has value and meaning. It is, it is something of great service. So let's look at uh, chapter 5. We'll start in verse 17. can, that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God may in the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather, they must serve all the better, since those who, are, who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we look at this passage, it's kind of an interesting one to uh, begin to wrestle with. Uh, It's kind of a strange thing to talk about yourself in any setting, but it's kind of even weirder in this context, right? As we talk about elders and pastors and those who preach and teach, it feels a little bit like I'm putting myself out there right now. And in my small group this week, some of the guys were giving me a hard time. They're like, hey, those verses about paying pastors, I bet you're going to spend a lot of time there. Like, I bet you're going to camp out on those verses for a little while. Uh, It it could be a little bit uncomfortable, I, I think. You know, it's a little bit like saying, hey, I've discovered the key to humility and I've written the best book that's ever been written about it. I'd like for you to buy it, right? Like there's just something awkward about talking about spiritual things in the midst of uh, this kind of thing. But one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible is uh, there's kind of some freedom in that. Just to come to the next verses and say, hey, let's make these verses clear and understand them and then keep going. So that's what we're gonna do today. So verse 17 Uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What specific behaviors does it say are worthy of honor? Those who rule well and those who work hard at the word and teaching. So literally it says the hardworking ones in word and teaching. Now in chapter three, we saw the qualifications for elders and one of the qualifications was they needed to be able to teach. And so that was a qualification that was there in, in chapter three, Here we seem to have this kind of subset of the elders who are devoted or designated to be the primary teachers or preachers of the word. And so there seem to be these elders and it says, especially those who labor in this one task. And it says that they are worthy of double honor. Now, some have said that means that kind of that honor, that concept of honorarium we talked about last week, that it, it could mean they're worthy of double the, the amount, but that's probably unlikely here. It probably means that they're worthy of respect and some sort of payment. And you look at the verses that follow and what it talks about the, uh, the oxen, it talks about uh, the workers deserving of his wages. It probably connects the idea of kind of respect plus some kind of a payment that is to be made. And so then uh, Paul uses in verse 18, two different images. And just in case the kind of honor the elder starts to go to an elder's head, he immediately refers to them as basically a farm animal and a day laborer waiting on his wages. So make sure you don't get too, too kind of puffed up in this whole thing. But Paul grounds this whole idea in, uh, in two different passages. One is out of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Another is a saying of Jesus. And so Paul compares these two things and cites scripture on these two things. Now, this image of the ox is kind of an interesting one. He's talking about an ox, treading out the grain. And what they would do is they had a threshing instrument that they would pull and they'd pull it through the fields and it would separate out the grain in order to get the good stuff separated from the bad stuff. And there's an Old Testament law that said that as you're going through that and your oxen is pulling the thresher through the grain, that you're not supposed to put a muzzle on the ox's mouth, but you're you're supposed to allow him to eat of the grain while he works so that you're treating your animal well and he continues to work hard for you that if you somehow limit him, if you treat him harshly, if you don't do that, you're probably not gonna get as much production from the animal as if you let him, you let him eat of the things which he's allowing you to harvest. And so that's the, the big idea is just kind of don't put a muzzle, on him, a muzzle on him and drive him and starve him while he's benefiting you. And so that's the general idea. And the, the obvious, the principle is pretty obvious, isn't it? Like just treat your animal pretty well. Your, your workhorse. Yeah, treat them treat him with with respect and with kindness. You know what? After 30 years in 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 kind of invested in church work and a lot of years in in pastoral ministry, I can see the wisdom of this verse without a doubt. That, that I, I just see over and over throughout the, the 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 churches that I've been a part of. That the way in which you treat those that are kind of in this sort of a role, reflects very much on the nature of the community of the church as a whole. As a whole. And I think it's, it goes it goes way beyond money. In fact, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. I think it, it really is about what we value as a community, what things we're invested in, what it means for us to relationally connect for one another and, and to care for one another. So Paul, the the basic idea when he says the worker deserves his wages is that uh, that the God's design is for some who are set apart for the work of the ministry to be paid so that they can focus all their time and energy on the work of the ministry. And so we all have jobs, right? How many of you have a job? Right. So many of us have jobs. Uh, most, of, all of you have responsibilities that may qualify and fit as your job. You may not earn a paycheck, but you've got jobs that you do. You've got responsibilities and things that you do, we all do. Pastors are some of those that have jobs just like you do. It's just their job happens to be in the church. And so, uh, as we think about this whole idea, uh, Paul—it's interesting—in chapter three, Paul already says that a qualification for elder is they can't be hungry for money; that they can't be—they can't be given over to the love of money. In chapter six, so the very next chapter after this, Paul is going to talk about false teachers that are that are seemingly kind of using their influence spiritually in order to garner wealth. And he's gonna talk about godliness with contentment as great gain. But he also says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you need to understand this is not about getting wealthy. This is not about the prosperity gospel. This is nothing to do with that at all. The idea here is just, uh, we've got work to do in the ministry of the church. And all of us, as we've said several times in this, cha- in this book, that the, the uh, primary image or one of the main images for the church is what? the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has many members. And so all of us are members of the body of Christ. All of us have work to do. In fact, the, the responsibility of the ministry of the church falls upon every member in the church, right? And so the pastor is just one of the members of the church, but he happens to be one that's set apart so that his ministry he can focus on full time and, and not be distracted through other things. And so that really is the idea of what Paul is trying to get at here that the church makes a choice to invest some resources in certain leaders in order to enable the ministry to flourish and primarily to enable them to lead in the kinds of ways that he highlighted. And so he talks about ruling. He's talking about leading the oversight of the whole church and direction of the church, and then especially those of preaching and teaching. Now, let me just address some awkwardness here. Uh, There's a lot of abuse in this, in the life of the church, especially in the West. There, you hear the reports. Yeah, anyone see the the, uh, the site about sneaker preachers or preacher sneakers? They, they just showed up like the the incredible amount of money that preachers were spending on their shoes when they were on stage. Uh, it just it get, can get to be really obs- obscene and absurd, right? Like there's all kinds of things that you see. You see the reports of you know, the jets and the things that are going on. And so because of that, I think we've got some natural skepticism when we hear this. And I just want you to know, and we try to be as transparent as we possibly can be. I, I don't have a jet. Like there's not one of those out there somewhere. I, I assure you uh, that I don't. Um, let me just say some of this. When we first started, uh, I was, we, had, we have an elder advisory board and I submitted my personal family budget and they went line item by line item through it. And we helped use that to, to, set, uh, to set sort of our salary and what it would look like. But I don't have the ability to set my own salary. Uh, someone else does that. And so we have an advisory board that does that. And as we have our own elders, they will do that. We have a finance team made up of members of our church that go line item by line item and process all that. We've got a third-party bookkeeping company that does that that's outside of our purview. And so there's a lot of accountability, a lot of structure around that. I don't have the ability to dip into any of that. So I just want you to know that. Uh, We wanna be as transparent as we possibly can with you and just let you know kind of here's how we operate and here's what that looks like. And, And if you ever have any questions about any of that, feel free to come ask. But the heart behind that and what Paul's saying is, that we want to be about furthering the mission of the church. And if we can invest resources in a few that can devote all their time to that, and that's going to enable us to further the mission of the church, then man, we want to do that. We want to we move forward. In fact, and we would love to be able to hire some other people. And as God brings resources to us to be able to hire kids pastors and students pastors and other, other things, and as God draws that money into us and, and gives it, I mean, we will take it and invest it. We want to steward well the resources we've got in order to further the mission of a kingdom. And so we, we, we want to see Jesus exalted in the city. And we want to see disciples raised up. We want to see you flourish as those who are, who are walking with Jesus. And so anything we can do for Jesus' kingdom, we want to invest that well. And that's, that's the heart of this. But we also are going to see it's not just about the, the honoring of the elders. There's also some accountability that shows up here in the verses that follow. In fact, if you're gonna give someone responsibility, you always have to give them also authority and accountability. But if you're gonna give someone responsibility to lead something, you have to give them authority to do so, but then you also have to give them accountability so that they're not lone rangering it as they go. And uh, what we see in the rest of this passage about pastors, about elders, is that the integrity of the church matters a great deal. And so we wanna invest also in the integrity of the church. Verse 19 talks about protecting leaders. In verse 19, it says, do not allow an accusation that comes unless there's two or three that bring it. That's bringing an Old Testament principle in. It's not just about the number of two to three. What he's saying is, man, don't let someone just take pot shots at the leaders. Uh, Allow these things to be investigated and search it out and see if there's a legitimate claim there. If not, and if there isn't, then you need to shut it down. But if there is, then it goes on to verse 20 and we have to begin to deal with that thing. And so when you see verse 20, you see the, the accountability that takes place. In many ways, uh, verse 20 is gonna reinforce what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Jesus said, Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you, then you one-on-one go to that brother and make it known. If he repents, then you've won your brother. Uh, But if he doesn't repent, then you need to go take a buddy and take someone else and go to him and confront him and deal with that sin there and hope that he repents there. And if he doesn't, says, then you've gotta take it to the leaders of the church and allow it to be dealt with at that level. So that was what Jesus taught us in how to deal with a brother who's sinned in a way that's injured us. This really comes to the, kind of reinforces the idea of what Jesus taught, but it also takes it to another level in the sense of these are leaders that he's talking about. So he says, in the present, uh, I'm sorry, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Friends, that's not a fun verse to read from this chair. just gonna say, not that I'm sitting, but from this seat, from where I'm sitting, uh, that's not a fun verse to have to read. Um, if you've ever seen that happen, and it's, it's not a fun thing. And you need to know the goal, the goal is not to shame a brother who's, gotten, who's fallen into sin. But it is supposed to have a effect on us when it says, so that all may stand in fear. That if a pastor, if I fall into grievous, unrepentant sin, you guys have to say it here. Because I get up here and I teach. And, and there's, a, there's a, a weightiness to this. There's a weightiness to me when I read in the scriptures that those who teach will incur a stricter judgment. There's a, there's a burden that comes with that. And if I fall into sin, you guys have to get up here and talk about it. Because that's the consequence of what it is. Because, you know why? Because my feelings aren't as important as your feelings about the truth of God's word and about the truth of the church and about the truth of the gospel. And I'm a fallible man, but Jesus is not. I'm a man who can fall, but Jesus will never fall. And so we have to stand true to that in the, in, in the light of those situations, what happens. And you know what? The biggest problem of the church has been in dealing with these kinds of issues, that the church didn't deal with things, but they allowed news agencies and radio stations and others outside the church to deal with these things. In some of the big cases where we've seen, one of the reasons churches get so, many, get so many pot shots is because the church didn't adequately deal with the things that were going on in its midst, and they had to wait for an unbeliever to come and raise those issues. And that, that invalidated or brought into question the truth of God and the truth of his word. So friends, there's a, there's a weightiness to this that we have to live in and that we have to do, uh, that we have to be honest about, and it's important to do that. That leads us really to verse 22. And it says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, right? So it's saying like, if, if that's the case and if that's the consequence and if that's the severity with which we have to deal with this, then, then you shouldn't just make anyone a leader. Like don't put that burden on someone and also don't put the weight of your own endorsement of that person on someone if you haven't properly vetted who they are. And you feel in the weight of that? This is what it's talking about. When it says, don't lay hands on someone too quickly. It could also be taken another way. It's saying that after a man has fallen, that there is hope for restoration. That if a brother's fallen into sin, there may be a time for restoration, but it ought to be slow. It ought to be a long period of time. It ought to be a weighty thing before we put him back in. So it may be saying that if someone's fallen, don't just say, don't just let them say they're sorry and then throw them back into their role as a teacher, as an elder, as a leader. But wait and give it time. You know, I learned this the hard way. We had a leader in a church I was a part of, and. Um, came to me one night and just said, hey, can we meet? And we went and uh, got down, went down into my basement. And we talked and he began to weep and he began to cry. He began to tell me, man, I have, I've gossiped about you. I've lied about you. I've worked behind your back against you. I've done uh, all, all manner of um, kind of assuming the worst about you. And I've come to the realization that those things weren't accurate. And he said he was sorry and he Everything in him seemed to be really repentant. We spent about a couple hours just processing all that information. You know, one of the things that happened at the end of that was we kind of put him back into leadership and he did awesome for three months. And then after about three months, went right back to his old ways. And what I learned was, do not be hasty about laying out of hands. Do not be hasty about restoring a brother because of apparent contrition, because of emotion, because they shed a few tears, but wait and see for, watch the track record and see whether they've been restored. And that's an important thing for us to do. And so these are the principles that he talks about when he talks about leaders. Then you get down to verse 23 and it feels like there's this kind of left, uh, kind of hard left turn that he takes. Uh, your Bible may put it in parentheses. He says, hey, no longer drink only, only water, have a little wine. Um, now th- this room feels a little heavy right now. We've been talking about sin and severity and all this stuff. He's not saying like, dude, I know that's a lot, like go drink a little. That's not what he's trying to do here. Uh, what are you saying? He just kind of takes this weird parentheses though and goes over and says, yeah, apparently Timothy had a weak stomach and it may have been because the water there was tainted with some stuff and that drinking the water, uh, kind of the public water of that place was continually causing him problems. It, it feels like a really weird place to deal with that right here though, doesn't it? Like, I don't know if Paul just was a little AD, you know, ADD, like a little bit like, I don't know, just, hey, hey, by the way, that wine thing, you should take care of that. Like, I am not sure exactly why Paul put it here and no one really knows. Here's why I think. I think in, in, the, the, in the context of this passage, he's also talked an awful lot about false teachers. One of the things we saw with false teachers is that they were given to aestheticism, meaning they were given to kind of ignoring the body and, and pretending to be these kind of hyper-spiritual people. And I think Paul's saying, look, you're gonna get false accusations. You're gonna get charges. You're gonna get this stuff thrown at you by these people that don't understand the truth. Dude, don't give in to them. Don't live in fear. Don't live in worry. Don't live in this kind of fear of man and what everyone's going to think about you. But dude, just go drink some wine. If, if the water's hurting your stomach, have a glass of wine. It'll be better for you than drinking uh, contaminated water. And so I think that's probably where he's going. And here's why I think that, or one of the reasons I think that. You get to verse 24. What's he say? The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even though those that are not cannot remain hidden. He's just saying, man, your character is going to be revealed over time. And so don't live in fear that you've got to kind of measure everything up and put on appearances in order to pretend to be something you're not. He says, just be true to yourself, be true to the word of God, and then allow those things to, to surface over time. You don't have to try to manage your image so much. He's like, if you need a glass of wine medicinally, go take a glass of wine and don't worry about what those guys out there accusing you of that is really a false accusation. Does that make sense? Kind of see where he's going? I think it's an important thing. It also connects with don't lay hands on someone too quickly. See, hasty action requires you to rely on first appearances, doesn't it, or first impressions. And first impressions sometimes aren't the best, sometimes they're unreliable and aren't the best understanding of what is real. See, unworthy men, when it comes to leaderships, might be chosen hiding the issues that lie under the surface and other people who are highly capable, but also uh, might be overlooked, though they're worthy because their good deeds aren't done in the limelight. But there may be people whose good deeds are done in the background somewhere. But over time, that stuff's going to rise to the surface, and you're going to get to see who they really are. So you see what Paul's teaching about about leadership? He's saying, look, some leaders need to be set apart so that they can really focus on furthering the mission of of the kingdom and making disciples and reaching lost and teaching the word. And so that's a, a priority for us. But with honoring of them with that authority that you give them there's got to be accountability for them and so there's a weightiness to that too and we need to hold those two things in tension and wrestle with those so that's the role of work inside the church Um, i've had enough of that let's go and talk about you guys and your work outside the church okay we shift gears a little bit and get to verses one and two Uh, because one of the things you see is that pastors can bring disgrace on the grace of christ but others can as well and so when you get to verses uh, chapter six verses one and two he, we have to deal with this issue. Uh, first, he says, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor. There's a kind of a strange concept here when he begins to deal with slaves. Once some of your translations may say bondservants servants because they're trying to kind of distance themselves from this idea of slavery. And in some ways, slavery was a really different thing in that culture than the way we think about it in kind of 17th, 1700s, 1800s in America and in our world, it was a different thing in that culture. But there was probably about 60, best estimates we can figure in the Roman Empire, are about 60 million people who had fit this category. And so there's kind of this indentured servitude of slavery that took place. One commentator said, slaves enjoyed equality of status within the church, but decided inferiority in their respective households. An irre- irre- irreconcilable antithesis which found its only solution in the ultimate abolition of slavery. So, the problem here is that Paul is not trying to necessarily overthrow slavery in the Roman Empire through this passage. Think about the context for a second. Paul's writing to whom? We've been in this book a long time and it's named it, so hopefully, y'all can pull this out. Paul's writing to whom? Timothy. And where is Timothy? deep thinking here, what city? Ephesus. And so he's in a city in the Roman Empire, a a, a huge metropolis that's got all kinds of multicultural people coming from different regions from around that world. There's huge uh, kind of false pagan worship that takes place. They take a whole month and devote it to a worship of the god of Artemis. And they come in and they, they have this worship that takes place there. But you're in the Roman Empire, which is definitely kind of on the anti-Christian side. In fact, the Roman emperor looked himself very much like a godlike figure. And so you have this entire Roman empire and Paul's writing a letter to a single pastor in a single church of a single town in this empire. And it's unlikely that Paul is gonna say, hey, Timothy, you and your little church who's not in really a part of the Roman empire, why don't you overthrow everything that's being done in the Roman empire? And so some people have raised the question like, why didn't Paul just go off on slavery right here? Well, the reason is Timothy probably had very little influence. In fact, Christians were persecuted. They were outsiders. They were very much condemned and looked down upon. So there's gonna be very little ability for him as a pastor of this little church in a, in a big town in a huge empire to have much of an effect on that. So it, I think it's important to say here that Paul's focus here, as with most New Testament writing about slavery, is not on societal reform, as much as it is on helping Christians in this church figure out how it is that they are supposed to live as brothers in the midst of this new thing called the church. So the scenario he brings here is that you actually had slaves and slave owners who are both in the church. So Timothy's got a pastor, these guys, and they're together. Now here's the interesting thing, is worshipers, they are equals. In the sight of God, they are equals. In the sight of the church, they were equals. They were very much peers and brothers and they considered themselves to be brothers. And yet in the Roman empire, one was severely inferior to the other. Can you imagine the tension that might feel, that you might feel when you walk into church and it's like, this is my brother and we get to be together. And then you gotta go home and he's saying, hey, I need you to do this job. So Paul's trying to give Timothy some rules to, for how to deal with that. Now, let me just put one thing to death slavery is evil, racism is evil, what we saw in our country that has led to where we are with systemic racism and with ongoing uh, hatred of one race and the disintegration of the family and the dividing up of families so that they are scattered, so they're continually weakened, so they can be oppressed, so that we can, uh, so that we can profit at their expense is an evil that, that can't be defended in this word but I need to say that out loud because we've had idiots that have tried to use this word to defend that kind of action. So I just want to say without a doubt, that, I don't think Paul's trying to say we need to overthrow that here, but I think we need to know that that is the truth of God's word, that we are all made in the image of God. Whatever color your skin is, whatever pigment that you seem to bear on display you're made in the image of God. You are a glory. You're one who bears the glory of God. And so there's no room for racism in in this book, and there's no room for racism within Christ's church. Is that clear? All right. Beat that horse to death. Um, Let's move on and talk about work, okay? So applying this to our day and and where we are and how we're trying to function in terms of our own work I and mean, we all have bosses. We all have masters of those that we report to, those we answer to. So let me rephrase this for us and just deal with it here. Let all who are under the yoke as workers regard their own bosses as worthy of all honor. Oh, now we're stepping on toes, right? Like as long as we were talking about, you know, other cultures and other things, you're like, oh yeah, they should probably do that. That'd be hard. But now we got to deal with it when we think about us. When you think about regarding your own bosses, let me say this. What he was asking them to do is way harder than what this is asking us to do, right? Their their task was actually much more difficult. Let all who are under the yoke as workers regard their own bosses as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing bosses must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And as your boss who is a believer, do you view him as a fellow believer, a brother, and one who is beloved of you. And that's what this is asking us to do. Now, as you think about this, let me just say, it's kind of a birthright in our country to complain about your boss, right? Like that's just part of work. You're supposed to go in and whatever it is they decide, you're supposed to kind of bicker about it. That just seems like that's part of the part and parcel of of how we're to operate and what it is that we're supposed to be. It's easy to give ourselves into criticism. It's easy to give ourselves into gossip, um, and yet this says we're to we're to regard them with as worthy of all honor. Now we live in a day when authority is despised by many. Like we, we don't like authority, and I'll just say it that, like that's not new. Like no one's ever liked authority. Like you go back to the Garden of Eden and ever since then, then, people have pushed and bucked up against authority. Uh, None of us like to submit to someone else. We all wanna be in charge. Let's just be honest, resistance oftentimes feels better, doesn't it? Than submission. It makes it hard. And yet, also I think it's important to say um, relationships with those in authority are often mixed and kind of messed up. One, we all have experiences and baggage we bring to that. But two, you're dealing with a boss who's a sinner. And a boss who makes wrong decisions and a boss who makes mistakes. And so because of that, I think sometimes those have caused us hurt and that that just makes that turmoil even greater when we think about how it is we're to operate. And yet he calls us to be respectful. I think it's also important to say resisting authority is not always wrong. There are times when you're asked to do something that violates the will of God and you need to take a stand. And so it's not as though this needs to be just, man, just you need to take whatever it is that comes your way. But um, we are called to, to be respectful of those in authority uh, in most cases. Um, now, here's the, here's the reality for us. Not everyone that's an authority over us has truly earned our respect, have they? You ever had a boss that you have a really hard time looking up to? You ever have a boss that you not only don't look up to, but you look down on because of, of who they are? I think it's an interesting thing in this passage. It says, regard them is worthy of honor, meaning consider them as worthy of honor, meaning make a choice to treat them with honor. That isn't as though they've necessarily earned it, but you're going to choose to act honorably towards them, even when it's hard. But I think when we think about this, I just think of experiences in my own life. I think of coaches that I've had. I think of teachers that I had. I had one teacher in college that uh, day one, I'm I'm 100% certain his goal was to make every girl in the class cry. And he just was an was a evil man. And I'll just say this, I had a really hard time and I did not get the best grade because I did not want to do anything for that guy. Because the attitude and everything in that, you're going to have authorities and you're going to have people that you're going to look at and it's going to be really difficult for you to treat them with respect. And yet we're called to somehow treat them with some kind of, uh, with some kind of an honor. A parent's... I say this, if, if you don't teach your kids to do this, uh, they probably won't get it. And there's an old Spanish proverb that says, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priest. Moms and dads, the little bits you do uh, in terms of shaping the way your kids think about this is gonna be way more effective than what we have to try to do to repair it as adults. That if you don't shape them in the early years to respect authority, us reshaping them after... 18, 20, 28 years of running a certain way is going to be far more difficult. If you are continually running down your boss and for 18 years they've heard you criticize and, and bemoan every authority figure in your life, that's going to have an effect on them. And you're going to, have to, you're going to have to deal with that and they're going to have to learn the hard way if they don't learn it, if they don't learn it at home. So how should a Christian in a workplace be different from others? Well, it's interesting that, the, notice the motivation that he gives in verse one. He says that we're to treat them, we're to regard them, consider them, choose to honor them as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truth of what we believe, that the, the message of the faith, our doctrine, and the, the actual, the name of God, the person of God won't be reviled because of our actions. So somehow our motivation for this is we honor them, not necessarily just for their sake, we honor them for God's sake. We honor them for the sake of God's good name. Uh, Colossians 3 uh, says that our work should reflect our faith. And this is another another passage that deals with the same sort of a concept. Uh, If you go to Colossians 3, I think I've actually got that on the screen. You guys can just read along. It says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we're called to, uh, to obey and to honor our earthly masters. But you notice what he says, not as eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. And it's pretty easy to say one thing to your boss's face and then say something else about him at the coffee shop, isn't it? That's what he's talking about is don't, don't act one way in front of your boss and then act some, a different way behind their back. Don't, don't, uh, don't talk about her to others in a way you wouldn't talk to her face-to-face when you're dealing with those that you work with. It's interesting too, when you think about uh, kind of what it says, it says you're to work heartily as to whom? as to the Lord. And do you think about your work when you're working? Do you think, God, this is for you? God, I'm doing this unto you. God, I'm, I'm going to serve as best I can for the sake of your name. I'm going to serve the best I can as an act of worship for you. It says you're serving the Lord Christ when you do your work. So it's interesting that, that if you don't have a boss you respect, you still have a motivation to do what's right, don't you? because you do your work not unto the boss you can't respect, you do your work as unto the Lord. That's a good thing. And it's been said, do not worship your work, but allow your work to be worshiped. And I think there's an important distinction there. And work is not the center of our lives, although let's be honest, we may spend more time thinking about work and more time at work than in any other arena of our lives. It's the nature of life in a fallen world that we're gonna toil, we're gonna struggle to make ends meet, we're gonna fight to be able to pay bills off and to make a living and to do all the things we need to do. That's just a part of life. And so we're gonna invest an awful lot there. We don't wanna worship our work. We don't wanna make it our God. But we do wanna see that our work can be worshipful. And that I think is what the passage is trying to get us to see this. Have you ever thought about the fact that you could work so well that it would adorn the testimony that you have of God's grace in your life? that through the quality of your work, through the effort of your work, through your attitude at work, that you would actually adorn the gospel. You would actually adorn the name of God and make it beautiful to those around you. And it's true, I think, that most people will will not trust Christ until they trust a Christian. Most people are not gonna put their faith in the message that you give them until they trust you and they wanna hear what it is you have to say. And what he's saying here is that your work is something that opens a doorway for you to be able to share the truth of God's word with others. And, and that if you don't work in a way that's healthy, if you don't work in a way that's honorable, you're going to shut the doorway for the message of God to go to that person. You're gonna actually cut them off from that message. So as you think about just our lives, and I was just thinking about that this, uh, this week, and just thinking, yeah, don't, don't be speaking condescendingly of your boss five days a week, and then ask him to church on Sunday, right? As that's, probably not an invitation they're going to receive. Don't be disrespectful to your coworkers five days a week and then expect them to respect your faith. Don't uh, don't, don't cut corners at work and expect your coworkers to want to hear about the way, the truth, and the life named Jesus. There, there's, a, there's a weightiness also to our work and what it is we are to do. And the sad thing is some people in our world have lost their ability or their right to share the truth of their testimony and of God's good grace because of the way in which they have, off, they, they have done their work. Your testimony and your message of Jesus depend also on this. When you think about what it means that the gospel might be revered or reviled based, based on the way in which we, we operate at the office, and that puts some meaning and some significance into our work, doesn't it? Here's the thing. This book is true. The gospel is true. God is true, and God is trustworthy. None of that is up for grabs here, but we get to choose if we're going to blaspheme or adorn the gospel in the book with how we work and with the way in which we live. We get to, we get to put, uh, to beautify the message through our actions and through our attitudes. So friends, do your job. Let your behavior um, make a way for the gospel to, to be heard. You know, as I, I was talking to some people this week and I was thinking about those who are, those who are teachers in this world and, and just the, uh, the, the hard task that you have to go and to love students and to instruct students, many of them who don't really want to learn, many of them who don't really want to uh, want to respect authority and many of them are going to push against you. And yet you're called to go and to love and to call them and, and to, to teach them, to instruct them and to uh, do all you can to be a blessing to them. I was thinking about salesmen. I was thinking about oil field workers in an industry that goes up and down and fluctuates. And, uh, and it can be difficult, the, the jobs that we have and the things that you guys have to do. And I just want to acknowledge it's hard it's hard sometimes to go and work in a world where people are so antagonistic and where our society is so polarized and where there's these kind of counter ideas that, that run throughout our culture. It can be really difficult for us to know exactly how it is that we ought to operate. And yet, um, I also am a little jealous at times, to be honest. I love what I get to do. But I remember some of the times when I worked in telecom and I got to rub shoulders with and dudes that didn't know Jesus. And I got to, to interact with people that uh, were kind of out and had different approaches to life. And I remember getting to walk through offices and uh, interact with guys and guys coming in uh, and just say, man, what faith are you? I need something. And like just having these kind of raw conversations with people that they didn't know the gospel. And there's times when I'm jealous of that. And yet I know my call is to be here and this is my work. And yet your work is to be there. And your message is to be there, is to be heard both in your behavior and your attitude, but also through your relationship, that you want to live in such a way that, they, that their curiosity is piqued. And why is his attitude like that? Why does he show up for a smile when his, when his he works with the same guy I do? Why does he do good work even when his boss, uh, even when, when he's not treated fairly? Why does he respond with kindness when he's been disrespected? Why does he not bow up in anger, but offer grace to those around him? You want to pique their interest that they might say, that you might be able to say, well, let me tell you why. Because I have a God who is gracious to me. And you begin to, to point them to a Savior. Friends, our coworkers may not know the difference between grace and law. Our co-workers may not be able to walk through the book of First Timothy and tell you the storyline. They may not know the difference between um, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and other views of, of God's grace. But they do know the difference between sloth and hard work. They do know the difference between respect and gossip. They do know the difference between kindness and anger. And when we act in those ways, we create an opportunity for the gospel and God's good name to be, to be honored. And the best illustration I've heard of this uh, was a guy that talked about, um, it was a, reporter in Canada and there was uh, this years ago and there was a problem with um, auto mechanics taking advantage of people and it kind of had become kind of an epidemic thing and so he decided he's going to do an experiment um, about this whole problem that they were seeing throughout the country and so he had these cars that he just popped the spark plug wire off and had them towed into these auto mechanics and said "Um, can you my car won't my car won't work can you just tell me what's wrong and he said he went from shop to shop, to shop, and every one of them was pilfering him, and coming back with a long list of things that needed to be done, coming back with all these other things, and trying to upsell him and other stuff, and do all these different things, and as he did, he just went from one to the others, and finally, he gets to another, to one guy named Fred, Fred the mechanic, he goes to Fred the mechanic, and Fred comes in, and opens up the hood, and looks at the thing, pops the wire back on, says, "We'll start the car, he started, and he says, you're good to go, and so the reporter piqued his interest, and he went back to him, and said, Fred... He said, what, why, you know, do, you don't want to charge me for anything? He says, well, no, I didn't really do anything. It's like your car wasn't really broken. You just, that thing got untouched. You just need to put it back on. He said, well, why would you not? He said, I, let me tell you what I've been doing. I've gone to all these other places and every single one of them has tried to charge me. And he talked about the different amounts. They'd all tried to charge him and told the story. And he says, why would you not charge me? And he said, well, because I'm a Christian. He said, God saved me and everything I do is for the glory of God. And says, you're free to go. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't accept any money. That Sunday, that reporter wrote an article and it didn't show up in the auto part of the newspaper. It didn't show up in the lifestyle part of the newspaper. Actually made it to the front page. Fred, the Christian mechanic. And uh, that Sunday, um, everyone in the, in, in the nation of Canada that had a paper got to hear the testimony of Fred. And you know what? His sermon was, was heard louder than the sermon of a thousand pulpits that Sunday because of his integrity, because he, he put a, a spark plug wire onto the glory of God. So friends, I don't know what your job is, but put a spark plug wire onto the glory of God. Take whatever it is that God's called you to do. Take the place where he's placed you. Allow your attitude and your behavior to give a pleasing aroma and to beautify the gospel and the goodness of God's grace and of his good name so that he might be lifted up and exalted and so that it might create a bridge for that friend, that co worker, that boss, that person, that customer that you serve to trust the grace of the gospel for themselves. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray. Father, even through your grace, now we pray. Father, it's a privilege and an honor that we get to stand and to trust you, that we get to talk to you, that we get to walk with you, that we get to depend upon you. That we get to live for you. Father, would you overwhelm us with your goodness and your grace. Cause that to work deep roots into our hearts. That we might want, Father, to serve you well. That we might be freed up to honor those around us. To love well. To work well. Father, to testify to your beauty and your goodness in our lives. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.